What is population health? Why do some people become sick while others don't? How do we study and what can we do to eliminate health inequities? Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, the new podcast series from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science, covers these topics and much more. Join us. Arisha Martinez-Cardoso from the University of Chicago. Michael Esposito from the University of Michigan. And I'm Daryl Hudson at Washington University in St. Louis. Twice a month as we discuss cutting-edge population health research with scholars working across disciplinary boundaries. Welcome. In today's episode, we're joined by panel participants from the ongoing IAPHS annual meeting. I'm your host for today, Daryl Hudson from Washington University in St. Louis. Today's topic is educational pathways to health, and I'm joined by Jaron St. Ange, who's an associate professor of sociology at the University of Kansas. Jaron, welcome. Hey, thanks, Daryl. Thanks for hosting, and thanks to IAPHS for being here and allowing us this opportunity. We are all quite excited to be part of what we consider a pretty unique process, so thanks. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being here and to all the panelists who are joining us today. So, Jaron, why don't you tell us a little bit about what we're going to be talking about today? Sure. What we aim to accomplish over the course of our time together is really a discussion about the role of socioeconomic status on health outcomes. But more importantly, as noted in the title, what we want to explore and to discuss is really the, the particular pathways and the mechanisms that link education to a variety of health outcomes. We have a, uh, an interesting set of papers that conceptually and theoretically focus on the role of context when discussing the educational gradient. Mm, very interesting and very important work. So why don't you introduce us to today's panelists? Great. I'm going to turn it over to the panelists, but let me uh, first introduce the, the, the order of the panel presentator, pr presenters. The co-presenters are going to include Anna Zajikova, Tarly Townsend, and Taylor Hargrove. So could you each please introduce yourself? Give us the name of your study, let us know your institutions, as well as your co-authors. Also, if, if possible, please uh, share any information that you have about your relationship with IAPHS. Hi, um, thanks for hosting, Daryl, and, and for leading the conversation, Jaron. Uh, my name is Anna Zajakova, and I am an Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario, in Canada. Uh, my presentation is titled an upstream view of higher education as an institution with complex effects on population health. It's really about expanding how we, population health scholars, view, conceptualize the institution of education, and in particular, post-secondary education, and the way that it uh, impacts or is linked to population health. You know, I've had uh, wonderful collaborators for a number of papers that comprise this line of research, which I've been developing for almost a decade. But specifically for this presentation, I have worked with Elizabeth Lawrence, who is a brilliant scholar in health inequalities and currently an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And uh, I have been involved in IAPHS for the past several years, and I'm a very proud and happy uh, to uh, have uh, started or to serve on the IAPHS uh, board. Um, and I look forward to contributing in uh, various capacities in the coming years. Thank you. Thanks, Tarly. Wonderful. Um, nice to meet you all. 
My name is Charlie Townsend. I am a newly minted PhD, um, just a few months into a postdoc at uh, NYU's Department of Population Health. And so the study I'm talking about today was written with my uh, dissertation advisor, dissertation chair, Neil Mehta, and it's called Pathways to Educational Disparities in Disability Incidents, the Contributions of Excess Body Mass Index, Smoking, and Manual Labor Involvement. Um, this is my first time attending and participating in IEPHS after hearing really good things about it over the last few years. Um, so while it is a very weird and stressful year for all of us, I'm excited to be part of this conference. It's a little bright spot. And Taylor. Great. Hey, everyone. Um, nice to see some familiar faces and to, to meet some new people. I'm Taylor Harbour, an assistant professor of sociology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Um, today, I'll be presenting um, a paper that's part of a larger project um, that I'm involved with, uh, with a great um, colleague and friend, Lauren Gaydash, who is um, an assistant professor at Vanderbilt University. And so this particular paper is called Complicating Educational Disparities in Health, Variations by Race, Ethnicity, and Characteristics of Early Life Counties. Um, and in this paper, we really try to dig into the role that early life counties might play in um, complicating um, some of the educational gradients that we um, tend to see, especially by race, ethnicity, and nativity. Um, for this particular paper, my co-authors are Lauren Gadosh and then an excellent graduate student in our department, Alexis Dennis. Um, and then in terms of my um, relationship with IEPHS, I've also been a member for the past three or so years. Um, and similar to Anna, I'm one of the incoming um, board members for the organization. So also really excited to be able to serve this great um, association. And it's really a testament to IEPHS to see all the overlap and connections between all of us and co-authors. And so it's, it's wonderful to see. Great, um, wonderful, thank you all for your introductions. To, to begin with, what I'd like to do to begin the conversation is really have each of you briefly describe the, the motivation. What was it that led you to really get into this work um, that you've conducted? And if you could please also offer some of the key takeaways that you have from these, from these papers. Sure, so I can start. Um, this paper was, uh, this is Charlie speaking, this paper was um, really motivated by a few key observations. So first, we know that educational disparities and disability are quite large, and there's also evidence that they've been growing. Um, we also know that things like smoking, excess BMI, manual labor are heavily shaped by educational attainment, and that those things in turn increase risk of disability. But there was this missing piece of the puzzle where we didn't know exactly what proportion of disparities in new onset disability would be attributable to each of those mediators. Again, smoking, excess BMI, and manual labor involvement. So what we're trying to do in this paper is understand not just how education gets under the skin to produce disability, but also what the relative importance of these different pathways is um, to doing so at the population level. So to do that, we use longitudinal data from the Nationally Representative Panel Study of Income Dynamics um, to, uh, to examine, again, these, these pathways to disability and uh, educational disparities and disability incidents, and we stratify by age and gender group. Um, and so for the results I'll describe today, what I mean by educational disparities is a comparison between folks with at least a college degree and those with less than a high school degree, although we do look at other comparisons in the paper itself. So a couple of key takeaways. Um, first, 
we were able actually to explain a pretty large proportion of educational disparities and disability in folks under 65, um, but a smaller proportion in those 65 and over. And I'll talk a little bit about why I think that might be later in the session. Um, but in younger folks, we estimated that the three mediators explain about 60 to 70% of disparities in incident disability. But there were important differences by gender. So um, first, excess BMI was more important in women than it was in men, whereas smoking seemed to be more important in men than in women. And if we think about the patterning of education and excess uh, BM BMI and smoking in women versus men, these differences actually make sense. Now, in older adults, the three mediators explained more like 40% of educational disparities in, in disability incidents. Um, smoking, interestingly, was not a contributor at all for older women, or didn't appear to be at least. Um, but that's in line with what we know about historical patterns of smoking in women in older cohorts. Um, on the other hand, smoking was quite important as a mediator of these disparities in men. And finally, manual labor really only appeared to contribute to disparities and disability in young men. And if we think about you know, when people are typically doing manual labor in their lives and what the implications are sort of when we might expect that to catch up with you in terms of physical disability, um, that sort of makes sense that we wouldn't expect to see sort of long run consequences um, of, in terms of incident disability, not prevalence. So all in all, then, what we found is that these three mediators really did explain a considerable proportion of educational disparities and disability that we observed at the population level in the U.S. Um, and the results suggest, you know, some mediators that we might want to intervene on in order to disrupt that education disability relationship and ways in which those might vary by age and gender group. Um, but at the same time, I think as we're all aware um, of the risks of focusing only on proximal causes, these results also serve to remind us of just how important it is that we push for um, broad-based educational improvements so that we're you know, really addressing those fundamental causes as well. Thanks, Charlie. It's fascinating and really an interesting idea to start thinking about identifying these mechanisms that are really, that are really linking the role of education. So let's turn next over to Taylor. Great. Um, so the broader motivation for this particular paper really comes from um, accumulating evidence that the educational gradient in health differs across racial, ethnic, and nativity groups, right? So more specifically, um, we know prior work has demonstrated that higher education tends to have a muted or non-significant effect on health among Blacks, um, and that several Hispanic and immigrant subgroups tend to have better health outcomes than their white and native-born counterparts, despite typically having lower levels of education. And so researchers have posited several explanations for these inconsistent or paradoxical um, relationships between educational attainment and health by race, ethnicity, and nativity. And these explanations tend to focus on more individual level factors. So things like um, increased exposure to interpersonal discrimination in higher socioeconomic contexts or um, different types of psychosocial resources, um, things like John Henryism as a coping style or um, goal-striving stress, um, the types of resources that have been developed in response to um, the stressors of navigating higher educational um, environments, uh, particularly among those from disadvantaged backgrounds. And so while this work has certainly been extremely important and innovative, um, there's been less of a focus on the extent to which the characteristics of the environments in which individuals begin and navigate navigate their educational careers might either enhance or attenuate the um, protective effects of educational attainment on health among racial, ethnic, and nativity groups. And so there's been some great work on the influence of um, state-level contexts on educational disparities in health and mortality. 
but we actually don't know as much about the role of smaller geographic um, localities that are experienced early in life, right? So when educational trajectories are beginning and are being shaped by a host of factors. And so this is where our study comes in. We are really um, seeking to evaluate whether and how um, various aspects of early life counties, namely the economic policy and social characteristics of the county in which people lived as children or adolescents, might shape the education health relationship for various race, ethnic, and nativity groups. And so this particular project focuses on cardiometabolic risk in young adulthood, and um, similar to Tarly's study, considers two education groups, um, the higher education group being defined as those with a college degree or more, um, and the lower educated group um, being considered those with less than a college degree. And so what we find in a nutshell is that among whites, the uh, the expected educational difference in health, so better health outcomes among um, those with higher levels of education, was extremely robust across county contexts, right? So um, this educational difference was significant across each type of um, context that we considered. But for racial um, and ethnic minorities and um, foreign-born young adults, the health benefits of higher education actually depended on the characteristics of early life count. So in general, um, U.S.-born Blacks and Latinos who achieved higher levels of education had better health than their less educated counterparts only when living in relatively advantaged counties as um, children or adolescents. So advantaged counties being defined as um, increased opportunities for upward mobility, um, fewer unemployed and low educated residents, and higher government expenditures on residents' health and well-being. Um, and for foreign-born Latinos, the pattern was generally reversed, um, in which the expected educational gradient was really only significant among those who grew up in um, more disadvantaged counties, as defined by um, fewer opportunities for upward mobility, um, counties that provided less funding for education, and had a considerable number of residents who were unemployed or had lower levels of educational attainment. So really seeing um, the, uh, the extent to which uh, the benefits of education are contingent um, to some extent on um, where people are growing up, especially for racial and ethnic um, minorities and for those uh, different nativity groups. Thank you. Now let's turn it over to Anna, if you can also tell us about your motivations and some of the primary findings from your studies. And I think you can do a nice job of getting into this idea of the contingency of education and the, and the, the definition of education. Yeah, this is it's really interesting to to hear everyone's um, descriptions. So uh, you ask about the motivation and then key takeaways. So um, I have examined various aspects of the relationship between education and health and, and longevity uh, for sort of embarrassed to admit close to 20 years now since I was a grad student. But so about eight or nine years ago, I led a research project that had quite surprising findings. We studied the relationship between detailed educational attainment levels, this was using the National Health Interview Surveys data, and multiple physical and mental health um, all self-reported. And we expected to find and uh, describe uh, a monotonic education health gradient. By that, I mean more education, better health. And overall, this is what we found. But we also found surprising anomalies. Uh, and, and specifically, what we found that adults who attended college but did not earn a bachelor's degree or any degree or earn a vocational associate degree, that's how NHIS classified this degree. Uh, we think it's also a vocational certificate, but we don't know. Anyways, people who earned uh, no degree or a vocational associate degree actually reported more health problems than people who never attended college. 
They had more chronic illnesses, all of them. They had more physical limitations, more disability. They even had more acute conditions like colds and more chronic pain, a lot more chronic pain. And this was contrary to expectations based on the gradient. They, the sub-baccalaureate groups had more schooling, but not less, but more health problems. Uh, and, and we found additional results within these anomalies that further surprised us. For instance, the vocational associate degree had no health returns, but the academic associate degree was associated with health returns. So this really got us started on a multi-year journey um, of, of trying to understand these post-secondary anomalies, what causes them, for whom they occur, for what outcomes, etc. And I gradually started thinking more broadly uh, and more critically about the role of post-secondary educational institution. Um, and in particular, I've been thinking more critically about how we, in population health science, conceptualize the higher education. And uh, the main takeaway, uh, very broadly speaking, is that the gradient, um, the relationship between education and health is very context-dependent. And what I mean is that, yes, overall, there's a strong gradient, but the links differ across context. They differ across uh, population groups. They differ certainly over time, um, and they differ based on the socio-political, economic, and medical context. Uh, and when this context is as powerfully stratified as the post-secondary education is in today's United States, then the health returns to the different segments of that post-secondary education will differ in, as well. And so, my takeaway is that we need to dig deeper into understanding the disparities within the higher education system uh, as an unequal stratified institution with these quite complex impacts on population health. Great, thank you, thank you all. Um, as, you, as you just mentioned, Dr. Zajikova, you one important theme that emerged from each of these papers, which you just also mentioned, was the role of context on the health gradient. And in fact, both Dr. Hargrove and Dr. Thompson and I cited some of your previous work on context. So there's a really a nice synergy between all of the papers, which really made them a pleasure to, to read and go through. Um, so I'd like to explore this a little bit more in depth among each of you. But starting with Dr. Zajikova, you discussed this idea of the specific context of higher education, in particular, the, the health disadvantages of those without completion of a college education. And what you do is you describe, in your paper, you describe the educational context really in terms of the, the transmission of capital and how this varies in this baccalaureate case. I was curious, one, if you could explain that a little bit more, kind of the mechanisms about what you think it is at play with this idea of the transmission of capital. And secondly, you, you have this kind of compelling line at the end of your paper. And it's a, for those of you who haven't read this, who are listening online, it's really this wonderful conceptual kind of theoretically driven framework about how to think about the educational gradient. But you have this line in there that says, we need to refocus our conceptualization of the institution of education from a, from a meritocratic ideal to really this response to neoliberal policies. So I was hoping you could unpack those a little bit for us. It's a, it's a, it's a lot, but if you can give us some insights, that would be wonderful. Sure, yeah, that's a great question. Thanks, Jaren. So the sub-baccalaureate case, to me, uh, highlights the nature of post-secondary education, those anomalies that I described previously do. More advantaged students are much more likely to attend four-year institutions and to complete the bachelor's degree. It's actually interesting that when we say college degree, we mean the BA, although 
colleges offer other degrees. It, it, I think it just highlights very nicely how the BA is the central and uh, um, credential and the absolutely necessary threshold for sort of entry to middle class life. Anyways, um, less advantaged students uh, have access to post-secondary education. Now the access is nearly universal, but they're much more likely to attend the various institutions in the sub-baccalaureate market, including the for-profit and the various predatory institutions. And they're also much less likely to complete any degree, and especially the bachelor's degree. So when we find these anomalous null returns to some of these sub-baccalaureate attainment levels, what we're seeing are these intergenerational inequalities playing out in concert with inequalities across the different segment of post-secondary institutions. And what I find really interesting is that, that very broadly speaking, uh, in population health, we tend towards uh, the, the conflict perspective, right? We study uh, inequalities. But when it comes to higher education, education uh, as such, we tend towards a functionalist paradigm. Right, that views post-secondary education as this meritocratic ideal, as you said, Jaren, uh, as a uniformly positive determinant of population health, more learning, more credentials, better health. And it's not just in population health, right? The, 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 this functionalist paradigm has been predominant in sociology, demography, even in social epidemiology for decades. But post-secondary education is a very stratified institution, highly influenced by policies, by corporate interests, um, and increasingly so. So for instance, you know, since the 1980s, uh, states become, uh, began defunding post-secondary institutions. They gradually shifted, shifted costs to individuals and, and family. It's probably not a coincidence that this def defunding occurred just at the same time that the typical college student became less of the 18-year-old white male and much more so the non-traditional racial minority and female. Um, and in the process, higher education became less of a public good and a lot more an individual responsibility um, with individual returns. It became more entrepreneurial with corporations and public entities opening countless private and public welfare states, community colleges and other institutions. And this process just really diversified post-secondary landscape. Uh, so, um, you know, we have this advantaged students attending four-year colleges and completing, and disadvantaged students a lot less so. Um, and in this sense, the post-secondary education really mirrors what happened in the U.S. as such with a much more neoliberal orientation, and that's the case whether we are looking at the economy or the post-secondary education. And then the outcomes, the returns, the inequalities are not drastically different uh, for the economy as such or the post-secondary education. Great, thank you. I mean, I think it's a fascinating idea to this assumption that we have on returns to education while often ignoring some of the disadvantages. And as I know, there are other sessions going on at IAPHS, just thinking about the, the you know, what does it mean to even have a completion of a degree with, with student loans, for instance, and the inequalities that come from some of these student loans. Let's, uh, let's continue on with this idea of context. And let me turn over to Dr. Hargrove. Could you talk a little bit about county and talk about the context of counties and the, the role of county context. Specifically in your work, you talk about it, especially during childhood, and why would we really expect it to continue to persist past the childhood period? 
Yeah, sure. Um, so we know that educational attainment doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? So it happens within a bunch of um, meso and macro level environments and structures. And so counties are just one, um, but really important context in which education and um, attainment processes are occurring, right? Because we know counties play a huge role in kind of the daily lives um, of its residents, given that they're um, one of the main entities for uh, the provision and administration of state mandated services. And so um, we can think about how the types of counties in which educational attainment begins and occurs um, might be more or less uh, straining or stressful or difficult or beneficial um, for individuals of different races and ethnicities, um, as well as nativity statuses, right? And so this might lead to differences in the ultimate um, benefit or risk, um, if you will, of higher education. So for example, um, counties that uh, facilitate upward social mobility or make socioeconomic attainment easier um, might mitigate the effect of um, high effort coping or sustained effort, um, which tends to be employed to um, be able to achieve higher levels of education and which are also shown to um, exact a physical health toll um, on those who undergo these types of coping mechanisms. Or we can think about how counties that differentially allow for the American dream, right, so success based on effort, um, might shape the social psychological consequences of the educational attainment process. Um, in a similar manner, manner, the policies and economic opportunities of a given county might shape the importance or meaning of education for health just generally. And then lastly, um, we might think about how the characteristics of one's county of origin might also shape the expectations or aspirations um, that one has that may or may not be fulfilled, right? And so this could lead to um, different types of unique stressors that aren't always captured, things like goal-striving stress um, and identity threat or identity safety that could um, ultimately have these sustained effects on health. And so then a life course perspective really helps us think about why we expect the effects of county environments to persist across the adulthood, right? So for one, um, early life environments can um, set or shape trajectories of strain or stress that is experienced across one's educational career. So for example, um, individuals living in socioeconomically disadvantaged neighborhoods in childhood, childhood and adolescence um, might not only experience barriers to accessing higher levels of education, right, which would then go on to limit their ability to acquire additional resources associated with higher education, things like income and employment, um, but they might also to be exposed to stressful um, experiences during this process of attaining higher levels of education, um, really given the potential discordance in the types of capital that exist or are cultivated within their early life county um, and those that are needed to be or become most successful in terms in um, different educational institutions. So by capital, thinking about things like social capital, um, economic capital, and cultural capital, right? And then another reason, um, another important reason that there might be these lasting effects of counties is that um, the role of early life environments really um, shape or we, we know that there, that early life environments play a role in the development of behavioral responses to stressors and in the development of lifestyle, lifestyle choices that uh, persist across adulthood. So in particular, um, the characteristics of early life counties might create these specific types of cultures that residents are subject to and that shape the type of students someone becomes throughout their educational career, right? So shaping how they approach or address different obstacles that come up in their schooling. And so we might think about how county cultures that people are exposed to early on um, might differentially shape the need for individuals to develop different lifelong strategies, both 
physiological and behavioral strategies um, for dealing with stressors, strains, and opportunities of educational attainment. And so those who grow up in um, more disadvantaged contexts, for example, may be more likely to develop coping strategies that are characterized by resilience and persistence, right? And so while this might lead to success in terms of educational attainment, um, these strategies might also result in a cumulative wear and tear on one's body across adolescence and young adulthood. And, and then we also so many great ideas here. I mean, the challenge I know for me as a population health researcher is like, how do we measure these things, especially among those of us here who do a lot of like large secondary data analysis? I'm just thinking, where do we get these variables? You know, how do you get at economic or educational aspirations? How do you get at these kind of motivations? Which I think you point out a lot of the great theoretical ideas and, and also the, the, the challenging empirical, you know, the ch empirical challenges we have in front of us. Yeah, we definitely need some more of these more nuanced and complicated measures to, to try and test them, for sure. Great. Thanks for some wonderful insights. Now I want to turn it over and think about a, another theme that was observed across all of the papers. And one of the, one of the things I really liked about these papers is that it's looking at a, different, a group of different outcomes. So the outcomes differ across the papers. And also thinking about the, the role of timing and how do we actually measure and where do we measure the educational gradient on health? At what point in the life course? And I think Dr. Hargrove, you did a nice job of really emphasizing this idea of the life course and the importance of it. So I want to turn over to Dr. Townsend and think about your point. You point this out really well when you show the, the relationship between manual labor and BMI have different implications on disability depending on the age of outcome. Could you, could you expand on that a little bit and let us know why you think that's the case or what do you think is going on? Sure, yeah, so I'll give some examples. Um, as I mentioned, we looked at incident disability and disparities in disability in both folks 65 and older and folks under age 65. And um, as I mentioned, the apparent role of each of the three mediators that we examined um, in driving educational disparities and disability did vary by the age group that we were looking at. So we didn't have, because we were using PSID data, we didn't have multiple cohorts, which means that we were only able to sort of speculate about where some of these differences were due to age period, cohort effects, um, and all of those processes are probably intertwining, but um, of course they're all important. So, um, so just some examples to speak to your question, Jaren. Um, thinking about age differences and age effects. So I mentioned that the three mediators explained or appeared to explain less of disparities in disability in older ages than they did at younger ages. Um, so that leads us to wonder what other mediators we might be missing that are especially important at explaining disparities in disability incidents at older ages. Um, so one important one might have to do with frailty that emerges and increases as we age. So one's ability to adapt their environment to reduce the risk of disability as one becomes more frail um, is probably quite important. And of course, remember, disability is not just a product of one's physical status. It's about the interaction between the physical and the environment. And so one's ability to adapt the environment is really an important sort of tool. And that tool is going to be um, almost certainly patterned by socioeconomic status. So we think that um, at older ages, this is likely this ability to sort of manage frailty and adapt to adapt one's environment is likely to be a mediator, a really important mediator that we're not seeing that um, to be as crucial at younger ages. Thinking about cohort effects and period effects, um, we saw that smoking contributed to disparities and disability in younger women 
but not in older women. So this actually makes a lot of sense in the context of um, co cohort shifts in smoking and disparities in smoking in women, where you know, historically at first women weren't smoking, prevalence of smoking in women wasn't as high as it was in men. Um, and then over time, not only did prevalence rise, but educational disparities in smoking um, rose in women or grew in, in women. And so in more recent cohorts, then we end up seeing smoking contributing more to disparities and disability um, in women than in, in earlier cohorts of women. So there are a lot of kind of contextual effects and processes uh, to tease out as we you know, try to understand these mechanisms underlying the education health gradient. Great, thanks. I mean, I think you also you're also hinting at the the role of period effects. With Dr. Zajikova has done a bunch of work on that as well as thinking about the shifting meaning of education over different periods as well. I want to turn back to Dr. Hargrove um, to answer this question as well. You also discussed the meaning of health risk management at younger ages, and you started getting into this a bit when you were just talking uh, a second ago. But could you comment on your thoughts or findings about the role of age um, or timing in the measurement of health outcomes related to the education health gradient? Yeah, so I think just with any study, it's definitely important to think about what kind of outcome is most appropriate given the age of your sample or your target population. And so because we wanted to focus on um, young adulthood for a variety of reasons, which I'm happy to talk about um, in more detail later on, um, but really thinking about that period that precedes um, what we've seen in turn, that precedes this rise in midlife mortality that's kind of been going on, it's really important to think about um, how do we measure poor health or even variation in health among such a group, especially because young adults tend to be pretty healthy, right? Especially compared to, to middle-aged or older adults. Um, we also know that a lot of chronic conditions haven't manifested yet, um, and we know mortality is rare. So it becomes a challenge to, to figure out what meaningful, meaningfully to capture among this group. And so we decided to focus on biological indicators of physical health, um, which can really help capture underlying variation in young, um, relatively healthy adult populations, right? And so for this particular project, we created a measure of cardiometabolic risk that encompasses um, seven different physiological indicators that represent um, biological function in metabolic, inflammatory, and cardiovascular symptoms. And so these types of markers just generally, I think, give us an indication of how um, biological systems are functioning as a result of social experiences and exposures. And um, I think they can give us uh, some insight into the development and the progression of disease before symptoms or permanent damage might come about, right? And so this can kind of really give us a greater understanding of both the social and biological forces driving health disparities at later ages. Great. Once again, I feel like the more we, I mean, it sounds cliche, but the more we learn about this stuff, the harder it gets to figure out what, what exactly is going on. Let me, let me turn to the next question. And I would just like to, to comment on your, your overall contribution of your work, understanding the education health gradient. And really what I'd like you to know is, what, what I'd like you to explain is, how do you feel your work is really pushing forward the discussion? And feel free to add some specifics from this project or from another project. I'll turn over to you first, Anna. Oh, that's another great question. Um, let me answer it in a little bit of a roundabout way. So since 1944, when the GI Bill was introduced, college education has been an absolutely integral part of the American dream. Um, the, the, the expectation, I would say actually that the, the pressure, social and cultural, 
uh, to attend college is is intense, um, and it makes sense because college degrees are increasingly necessary for a middle class life. Um, and in fact, the majority of our young people conform to this pressure, uh, this college for for all ethos, and enroll in post secondary education. Uh, for instance, uh, about seventy percent of uh, high school graduates enroll immediately. Uh, so within three months after graduating, and additional adults enroll a little later. Now, nearly universally, college students, we know, aspire to earn a bachelor's degree, but fewer than 60% ever get there. So more than 40% of college students who want to earn a BA never do. This translates to uh, about 57 million American adults, to be precise, 25 and older, uh, 20, 57 million American adults who have uh, attended college but did not earn a BA. They may have earned an associate degree or no degree at all, 57. This is in contrast, by the way, to about 50 million with bachelor's degree. So if we can take the sub-baccalaureate group uh, as, as, as one group, which we, sh we shouldn't, it's a heterogeneous group, it's the modal education in the U.S., okay? Yet, we often just lump them into one group. Sometimes we lump them with high school. We say less than high school, high school, BA. Where is the 57 million in our research? Sometimes we lump them with BA completion. We say less than high school, high school, and then some college or more. We can't do that. It's not appropriate. My work shows that the health within this group is both highly heterogeneous and not um, really evidencing much of a return except for the academic AAs. For example, uh, in a recent paper, uh, we looked at chronic pain, and we found that chronic pain is as high among adults who went to college and dropped out or earned no degree as it is among high school dropouts. And moreover, when we looked at a number of mechanisms that we tend to examine, such as economic well-being, employment, social ties, health behaviors, to explain the disparities in chronic pain, we explained them for all groups except for the sub-baccalaureate, for, for the some college. There's something else than their jobs, than their incomes, than their marital status, than smoking and alcohol use, etc., that's causing this really uh, enormously high level of chronic pain, but also some uh, a number of other health uh, measures or health problems among the college dropouts. Um, okay, so um, what I think that this this work shows uh, is that we really need to understand better the health returns to this enormous segment of the American population. Um, since I'm based in Canada, I started looking at what's happening in Canada. Actually, it's quite similar. Um, the the sub-baccalaureate uh, segment here is also large, and there's also some indications that uh, uh, the returns to sort of associate degrees, especially trade certificates, are uh, none or even negative. Um, so we need to understand why this is happening, why the returns to at least some levels of post-secondary scrolling are so low for at least some of these groups. And it is critical to understand both because this is a large population group and for policy uh, reasons, uh, we need to be aware of, of uh, their sort of excess level of health problems. 
And it also is important for uh, conceptual or theoretical reasons, because I think it can help us get some purchase on how education operates. We can see maybe a little bit of the intergenerational uh, transmission of inequality, uh, maybe some of the disparities within the educational market operating. So there are different reasons why I think this is a very promising area uh, for, for further research. Hey, thank you. And I think it, you, you're overlapping a lot with Dr. Hargrove was saying. I mean, thinking about this transmission of not just, you know, economic capital, but thinking about it in terms of cultural capital as well and kind of the, the meaning that's associated with some of these different degrees. So thanks for sharing that. Uh, let me turn it over to Tarly. What are what are some of your thoughts on how are you pushing the field forward? Yeah. No, no pressure, I, I know. No <laughs> pressure, right. Yeah. <laughs> Especially coming after such a giant in the field. Um, I, <laughs> it's true. Um, I'm going to focus a little bit more on this specific paper because I don't have, um, as a earlier career scholar, I don't have such a, a large body of work yet as, as Anna and Taylor. But we'll get there. Don't worry. It's totally fine. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I look forward to it. Um, so I think this paper um, and some other work that I'm doing as well on disability is um, really contributing to an area that I think at least deserves um, more attention. Um, and that's, of course, disability and disparities in disability. Um, so you may know that up until the early 2000s, we were actually seeing overall declines in disability prevalence in the U.S. And um, those declines actually stalled in older adults around the early 2000s and in younger adults or adults in midlife, we're actually seeing growing disability prevalence now. Um, but we don't really understand why this is happening. And it's obviously a, a concerning set of trends. Um, so, and, and it also, as I mentioned, disparities, educational disparities or socioeconomic disparities and disability also seem to be growing. So these are really pressing issues. And um, I think our paper helps shed light on them and also draw attention to them, um, in particular by in, in the fact that we study disability in younger adults who often um, are not included in research on disability. Um, and, and because we, you know, are really trying to grapple with these gender differences and Asian cohort processes that are at play as well. Um, I'll also just mention a few kind of more in the weeds contributions, I think of, of this paper and another one that's actually just about to come out. Um, as I mentioned, we're, we're able to get population level estimates of the contributions of each of these estimators that we look at to disparities. And I do think this is important because um, you know, some mediation analyses will just take into a, will just sort of ascertain the mediation percentages, but what we're doing is is taking into account both the effect of the mediator on the disparity or the role that it plays in the disparity and the prevalence of the risk factor in the population, um, which really speaks to how important a mediator really is in context. And then finally, by harnessing um, the PSID um, longitudinal data, we're able to try to address some of these sticky causal questions that arise um, as we think about these kinds of, um, you know, really complicated questions of, you know, bi-directional relationships between um, risk factors and behaviors and health outcomes. Wonderful. Great. Uh, Dr. Hargrove, thoughts? Yeah, so I think, you know, kind of from a broader perspective, um, some of the work that I'm doing now and um, hope to do more of in the future is really just unpacking these, um, you know, traditional relationships that we see, right? So we all, 
are trained and, you know, read papers about just how great educational attainment can be for um, health, well-being, and mortality, but it's not the same for everyone. So really trying to pinpoint and identify why higher educational attainment is not um, as beneficial across um, social groups. And so I think we have some really great um, theoretical reasons why, and I think with the types of longitudinal data that we have now, we can better address those types of questions. Um, I think for the purposes of this particular paper, one of the, the major kind of um, contribution, contributions is really just looking at the role of early life environments, right? And so, like I've said um, earlier during this, this talk, um, there's been some really great work on the influences of geographic context in adulthood, right, and how those types of contexts might um, change the education health relationship among older adults. Um, but there's really been less attention to these factors preceding the completion of education. And so we just know generally that experiences and exposures in early life are um, super important for subsequent opportunities and outcomes across the life course. So I view one of the major contributions as just taking a step back and seeing what's going on um, before um, the later stages of adulthood to see if that's a place that we could intervene and try to make educational attainment um, easier to access and um, something that is, quote unquote, healthy for, for all people and all groups. Great. Thanks, Taylor. I want to stick with I want to stick with you. I think um, you're hinting at my next question. And I'm really interested in thinking about if you have any really parting ideas that you would like to share for the future of research, because I think you're heading there. That's where you're. What, the way that I was just reading your interpretation of that question, I feel like each of you has done really a wonderful job in mentioning the limitations in measurement, selection issues, conceptual restrictions, or some of the specific issues limiting our understanding of the health gradient. For example, you mentioned, um, Dr. Hargrove, you discussed the conceptual meanings of controlling for childhood SES in the meanings of educational attainment. So I'd like to ask the final question. Um, would you or others like to draw on your work to comment on what do you see as some of the biggest areas for improvement or some of the biggest challenges that are really facing our ability to understand these mechanisms that continue to link education to health? Yeah, so for me, I think one of the biggest challenges is actually having a measure of some of these concepts that we're talking about. So having measures of goal-striving stress or John Henryism um, in these big-scale national data sets. Sorry to interrupt. Can you just mention what John Henryism is? I assume most of our listeners understand what it is. You mentioned it yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So um, a coping strategy um, that's characterized by high and sustained effort. Um, so really characterizing this perseverance and um, tackling this orientation of tackling any challenge by any means necessary, essentially. And so we've seen from um, past work that while um, these types of um, orientations have been great in terms of um, psychosocial outcomes, um, they've actually taken a physiological toll on those who um, tend to enact um, these types of coping strategies, which tend to be um, rich and ethnic minorities, particularly we know the most about um, John Henryism among um, Black Americans, um, as well as those from disadvantaged backgrounds. So again, this kind of high effort um, coping strategy. Um, and so I think we need um, those kinds of measures um, to, to, to test some of the things that we're talking about here. And unfortunately, in a lot of the big um, data sets that, you know, in all of their glory and all of their great um, promise that they hold, we just don't have those measures. So I think that's one area um, 
one broad area that I think needs um, some improvement. And then at least specific to this particular project, I think another challenge is thinking about the role of changes in one's environment over time and with age, right? So we know that people aren't stagnant um, their whole lives and the places around them aren't stagnant either, right? So movement into and out of counties, for example, across the life course um, will not only have implications for the education health relationship among those who are actually moving, um, but also for those who um, never move because incoming residents um, have the ability to alter the economic policy and social characteristics of a given county. So I think it'll be a, um, a challenge to kind of think through the best ways to capture the influence of migration streams, um, as well as potential disruptions in one's educational career due to um, moving to a different area. Wonderful, great, thanks. And one of the benefits of being members of IEPHS is we know that a lot of, a number of the PIs on these large data collection efforts are IAPHS members, so hopefully we have their ears. And to be clear, we all very much appreciate all that you do in terms of your data collection efforts, and by no means are we criticizing them, but offering you highlights and potential ways to make them better, right? Absolutely. Totally agree. <laughs> so thank you if you're listening. We appreciate it. Uh, I want to turn it over to uh, Dr. Townsend for your comments on data measurement and, you know, we, things, Think what can we do to improve? Yeah. Well, I also have some um, thoughts about uh, the nationally representative surveys and large-scale data um, sets that we all depend on so much and are so grateful for. Um, you know, as I've talked about, one of our study's strengths is that we attempt to provide these nationally representative estimates. And um, of course, the reality is that not everyone really represent is really represented in nationally representative studies um, or surveys. And those who are least represented tend to be those who are most marginalized, um, those who might be at greatest risk of many of the health outcomes that we're interested in. Um, so, you know, we can think of many examples, people who are homeless, people who use drugs, people who are undocumented, um, Black people, Indigenous people, um, and folks from other marginalized communities. So, um, just, just an example that's um, relevant to Maya Neal's paper, the one we're talking about today, there was a paper back in 2011 by Brandon Poole that found that if data on incarcerated men, they didn't look at women, um, were taken into account in national estimates of obesity, national prevalence estimates of obesity would be considerably lower, and the educational gradient in obesity would actually look somewhat different. Um, and that that would also vary by um, race ethnicity. So I do think that, you know, of course, again, folks who are running these surveys are thinking very hard about these um, groups and working hard to access, you know, everyone. Um, but I think we can, we should also be thinking creatively about how to ensure that we're um, accessing data from um, harder to reach groups, ensuring that they're represented in the studies that we're doing, because um, that can really influence our conclusions and our policy implications. Um, so one example is through potentially increased efforts to um, complement the large scale data sets that we have with ones that really target certain uh, marginalized groups and finding ways to either complement or, or even link those data sets. And the funding. We need more funding, right? Is what we, we also need. Always, <laughs> yeah. I think most of the PIs of the data sets would agree with that. Uh, Dr. Sajikoa, Anna, do you want to uh, finish it up and let us know about your thoughts in terms of limitations or ways to move move the field forward? Yeah, uh, great, yeah. Uh, and I was really enjoying hearing both Taylor and Harley talk about uh, the issues because I would actually point out to several of the same factors. Um, 
uh, for instance, Taylor, you talked about the need to improve our measurements. You specifically talked about uh, John Henry's, and but I'm thinking in terms of education, how we measure education. Uh, the world has changed, and we can no longer collect every year of education from zero to eight, and then just lump everybody who passed high school into one, two, or three categories. Um, and I guess the good news is that shouldn't even cost a whole lot of money, right? Uh, that should just require little refocusing, maybe a couple of questions extra about the time that people spend in um, uh, college, how they pass through college, uh, getting uh, so that we can get at the as Taylor, you, you mentioned, I, and I love that phrase, factors preceding the completion of education. Um, so uh, so the, the, the improvements to measurements are doable and really, really important. Um, but more broadly, I would just say, I think this session shows that there are still really many important open areas for research in the education health literature. It's not picked over. Um, uh, and my work, I think, says that that one of these areas is the examination or, I guess, re-examination of our assumptions about the very role of education. Uh, in what way is education serving as the great equalizer versus as a tool for the reproduction of social inequalities across generations? Um, and, um, you know, higher education really needs to be examined as a complex institution that exists in today's neoliberal capitalist society, and it's fundamentally shaped by federal and state policies, um, as well as the priorities of the wealthy elite, right? Whether we look at the availability of colleges, where they're located, how many were open, what their funding situation is, how the students are prepared in K through 12 for their access, right? All of those are, are functions of policies, and we need to incorporate those explicitly. Um, and so we really need to open up a, towards a more critical and, I guess, conceptually inclusive perspective on, on higher education. Um, and I guess to refocus research even further upstream from this individualist, functionalist paradigm where you know we say higher education endows individuals with skills and resources to improve their health our health um, and and more towards that uh, you know nuanced multi-dimensional role of higher education as shaped by policies federal policies state policies and potentially as an institution that reproduces health inequalities in the population across across generations do you I just a follow-up to that do you think and this kind of goes in line with your paper that it can be co-opted so if you if you move this measurement into like better measurement right? And I'm thinking about how do you better measure education, whether it's online education, whether it's prestige of an institution. I can just imagine an institution taking that information and saying, hey, look, our institution is linked with these benefits to health, right? So there's kind of like this co-opting that goes with better measurement. Do you think, I mean, is that in line with this idea of kind of neoliberal policies potentially to the extreme? Could there, you know, could negatives come out of this? We have been worried about this. So um, with Sarah Burgard and um, Shauna Dyer, we, there's still a paper in progress, we've looked at uh, the relationship between um, educational attainment and uh, health and, and um, occupational characteristics um, um, in, in young adults. 
And we found also low levels of return. And we really worried about presenting these results for the exact uh, uh, point that you're making, that you don't want somebody to say, well, then, then we should just shut down these colleges. We should not... Uh, you know, if there are no returns, uh, is it, you know, can you blame the victim? Can you blame the institutions? And I think that what, what uh, it is a very, very valid concern. And I think that we just need to be very careful about uh, trying to understand that what it, what it reflects perhaps, and we don't know that for sure yet, is, you know, low quality of some of these institutions, the really massive uh, effect of, of background and, you know, the, the 18 years preceding the enrollment in any kind of post-secondary institution. You, you can't override it with a couple of courses uh, um, over a course of a year or two. So, but, but uh, yes, uh, this is something that we've spent a lot of time fretting about. I turn it over to our host who has a question. Yeah, so this is really fascinating, and I think it really is indicative altogether cumulatively of the importance of thinking about education and different pathways to health. And so you all mentioned a, a number of really important nuanced concepts and, and relationships that I think that really um, need to be reemphasized, if anything, for for listeners. And Especially around, you know, you think about the American dream and a lot of people see the key vehicle to the American dream is education. So notwithstanding the context, so Taylor, you talked about the context that people were born into and sort of the, the mentality in the United States is kind of like, regardless of where you're born into, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you work really hard, you get an education and you can do better. And then Anna's work is saying, you know what, that might not be the full story here. And I thought it was really shocking. Is this right that 60% of people who start college don't complete? Is that right? 60% never earn a BA. Now, in theory, some of them have maybe set out to never earn a BA, but we know from research by people like Eric Grotsky and Julie Posal that a uh, vast majority intend, hope, yearn for a BA. Wow. Yeah, and I think from a methodological perspective, we often lump those two groups together, right? Um, we often put people who've completed any college and with people who've completed college, and, and your work is showing that, indeed, there are two different health profiles there um, that we need to be paying attention to. Um, so a number of follow-up questions there, and this can can go to anyone, and I think this kind of goes into to Jaren's question as well. And I know you all are not saying that education be, should be considered a risk factor, um, and I would never say that. But what would you say that we can do in terms of eliminating or mitigating any types of structural barriers or um, what specific policies need to be put in place to do a better job of you know, helping people to actually get to their goal, which is oftentimes the American dream? And anyone can, can answer that. I, I can start us off. Um, yes, I think that's a fear that um, has always kind of been in the back of my head of people reading these um, kinds of conversations or findings as, well, some groups just shouldn't be um, attaining higher levels of education. And that is just absolutely not what <laughs> I don't think anyone is trying to imply. I think what we're trying to bring attention to is the fact that the process of attaining those higher levels of education for some people is more stressful or straining, and that ultimately can take away from the potential protective benefit of education on health. And so a lot of times, even the, the documented um, 
findings of the literature, it's not saying that education in most cases is linked to poorer health. It's just the effect is more is muted or not mm-hmm. always reach, reaching a um, right. the statistical significance level. So it's not right. saying that education is a risk, but rather right. there's something along that higher education pathway that mm-hmm. is taking away the benefits that could be conferred from this particular resource. And so I think um, what we really have to pay attention to um, is especially the the high school and college context that people are navigating and figuring out what it is about those types of environments that um, can become particularly stressful um, for people of marginalized groups, whether that be along racial ethnic lines, nativity lines, socioeconomic lines, and finding out ways to um, either change those types of environments or providing better resources to be able to cope with those types of environments. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, and, and maybe, Anna, I don't know if you've thought about this before. Um, you know, you talked about social political context and the importance of it in general. One thing that I hadn't thought about before is how um, different types of institutions market to, especially educational institutions, especially for-profit um, institutions. So there's a book called Weapons of Mass Destruction by Kathy O'Neill. And she talks about how through big data, people searching different things, um, essentially you get selected to receive and be bombarded by um, different advertisements to, to go. So people know sort of from like your your zip code and, and other demographic factors, they can kind of figure out where you might be and, and kind of market their product, which would be hop into this vehicle for, for, for better life, which is education. Come to our school, pay us money, take out loans. Um, is that something you've ever thought about? Is that, is that, you think that's a sort of a, a policy lever that we could take some action and making sure that it's sort of similar to what we see in, um, tobacco advertisement or preponderance of fast food restaurants in certain communities? Do you think we should be doing anything around advertising to especially marginalized people? Oh, that's that's a fascinating question. Uh, by the way, I love the book, The Weapons of Mass mm-hmm. Destruction. Um, the, there is a book that uh, also reminded me, uh, or your question reminded me of, and that's a, a book by Tracy Cotton called Lower Ed. Uh, and that's a book specifically about for-profit colleges in, in today's economy. And it's uh, a, a truly uh, disturbing portrait of the incredibly aggressive and often misleading marketing of, of these institutions to primarily uh, lower SCS and uh, minority young adults. Uh, so this is definitely going on. Um, we know, for instance, there's a disturbing relationship between the, the predatory colleges and veterans uh, because yeah. of, of the federal money that they bring in. Yeah. Um, but I think... I, I won't be able to tell you numbers off the top of my head, but in the grand scheme of things, these, these uh, for-profit uh, um, colleges are not driving what we're seeing. They're still a relatively small proportion of the higher education market. And maybe, uh, Tarly or Taylor, uh, you, you might know what proportion they are. I, I don't off the top of my head. Um, but uh, more information would be really important because it turns out that especially first-generation students, they really are lost. They don't know if they are um, eligible for financial aid, for help with applying to college, that they're even eligible to go to a four-year colleges as opposed to the nearest 
uh, you know, two-year college that they know because they pass it every day. Um, so more information would make some difference, but uh, there is also good econometric research that suggests it's certainly not going to solve uh, these um, these inequalities in the types of institutions that students um, attend, unfortunately. I'm, I'm curious if they're, if they're starting to ramp up. I mean, I'm just thinking about what's going on with the pandemic and how, you know, these for-profits, you know, they have a pretty, you know, they have a nice marketing campaign, you know, they know how to do this and they're much more flexible than the traditional university. And you take the traditional university that's now moving remote and pretty slowly, I mean, not just speaking for my institution, but, you know, we're, we're all kind of figuring this stuff out and they seem like poised to kind of jump on this and say, hey, why pay all this money? when you can pay it to us, at least in the meantime. So I almost wonder if this isn't a time where we're going to see kind of a ramp up in for-profit, or at least I'm sure they're thinking in this direction. Yeah, that's an important um, question and definitely timing. Any, did you have a, a thought? I was just thinking that, you know, I, I'm sure that's what they're thinking. And I think that's what many of us in more mainstream parts of the higher education are afraid of. <laughs> but I think that that when you look at, you know, middle class and, and upper middle class uh, students, they know better than to go to, you know, uh, uh, these, these institutions. They know what they want. They know how the signal that the different names of universities uh, bring. And so, um, um, but but yeah, this is something that we should keep studying now or we should study now and you know this year next year this is going to play out so it will be interesting if whether there are going to be answers to your questions Sharon on this you're right and I think that's again comes back to this idea of kind of transmission of capital and what does education mean and you're right among upper uh, middle class individuals this idea of names of specific institutions have a lot of cultural capital associated with them whether they're remote or whether they're not absolutely um, and Charlie, I had a question for you. I don't know if you'll be be able to answer it, but I was thinking about, especially right now with the growth of the quote unquote gig economy um, and how so many, especially from, from Anna's work, thinking about all those people who either don't complete college or who get a, a trade degree or associate's degree that they can't quite use. A lot of people are finding themselves into the gig economy. So they're delivery drivers, they're driving Uber or Lyft. Um, you know, a lot of people, economists are very interested in, in studying that population, but I'm, I'm really curious about, especially for the, the age cohort and for the potential for disability. So, you know, if you go back to like Lynn Simon's San Francisco bus driver study, um, which was seminal in showing how people were sitting in traffic and all these, the lack of control. Um, but we know now we, we have Postmates and all these other apps on our phone, and we know that they're, they're dependent on what we rate them and, and gain their timely, gain our food, uh, their timely. Any, any thoughts about, you know, sort of on the horizon, things that we should be thinking about in terms of the, the effect of the gig economy on, on health? Yeah. Yeah. I think you pointed to a few already, um, so our study, um, again, looked at manual labor and, um, and we were specifically thinking or primarily thinking about the role of manual labor um, in creating additional occupational hazards that could set people up for disability. But as you're getting at, Daryl, there are so many other ways in which work could um, and does drive health outcomes, including disability. And 
Um, there's so many dimensions of work. So you spoke to job control and how the sense of not having influence over what one's doing and um, and one's impacts um, can can contribute to things like chronic stress, which can translate into higher incidence of um, heart attacks, for example. So, um, so one, I think there is a need to, you know, there's lots of sociological theory around the different dimensions of work and how they can translate into, um, you know, different sort of implications for people's lives. But I don't think that, for, to my knowledge, at least, that um, those theories have really been fully applied yet to the changing nature of work. And I think the gig economy is a really big component of that, as you're describing. And um, I think there's so much to be done, so much to say here, but just one example that I'll give is, um, as I think maybe you hinted to, is that, um, you know, one thing that many gig workers like Uber drivers um, seem to speak to, although there are, are sort of lots of um, debates around this and sort of critiques, um, is that it does offer more flexibility. And I think as many of us are experiencing, um, those of us who have the luxury of working from home in the context of, pande of the pandemic, um, that there can be something really nice about that flexibility and that that can offer a sense of job control that one might not have um, in a role as a delivery driver or something else um, under a different context. So what is going to be sort of the interactive nature of these components. On the one hand, you might be making a relatively low wage. It may be less stable than, you know, a salaried job. On the other hand, you have more flexibility. So I do think we need a lot more um, work and it'll be interesting to see sort of what are the different pathways from, you know, mapping from these different dimensions of the changing work environment to various outcomes in health. I keep thinking about people moving. I mean, a little bit separate from the gig economy, but folks who are moving for the oil industry, for instance, and kind of moving, you know, the, the migration up to South Dakota or to, to Western Texas when, when the getting's good, right? And thinking about that association with disability, which is going to affect that, that SES health relationship, but in a very specific period. And, and again, it comes back to this idea of timing of health that, you know, you have a short influx of cash, which might be good, but in the long run, what does that mean for your overall unemployment? So I think that's a an interesting idea. This seems like a really good place to wrap up. Um, Jaren, thanks so much for, for co-hosting. This has been a, a really rich discussion. And special thanks to Taylor, Charlie, and Anna for joining us today and providing such incredible insights and new information, um, a lot of, of, of good food for thought for researchers out there, and hopefully for, for practitioners and policymakers as well to be considering. So we'd like you to tune in more for conversations from experts um, from different methodological and disciplinary traditions work with one another across boundaries to understand and improve population health and up, upcoming episodes of Sick Individuals, Sick Populations. And be sure to check out the work of other scholars participating in the IAPHS 2020 annual meeting. Visit our website at iaphs.org for recordings of our conference. Thanks for listening.